Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of A Republic to Keep. I'm your host, Liam Bauer, and thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. Today, our panel will be discussing gun violence and gun laws in the United States. But before we get started, let's go around for some introductions. Miranda? Hi, everyone. My name is Miranda, and I'm a junior at Marquette University. Thank you. And Robert? Uh, I'm Robert Miller. Uh, I'm a sophomore at Marquette University and the chair of the Democratic Party here on campus. Thank you, Robert. And Will? Uh, I am a graduate of Marquette from 2020, and now I work in the private sector. Thank you guys for being here. And remember to all our listeners out there, if you like our show today or would like to listen to our past shows, you can look us up on Spotify Podcast under the title, A Republic to Keep. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. This is the text of the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution. This amendment makes the United States one of just three countries in the world that establishes a constitutional right for citizens to bear arms. The other two countries are Mexico and Guatemala. However, the United States has a much more expansive interpretation of its right to bear arms than either Mexico or Guatemala. In 2008, the United States Supreme Court case District of Columbia versus Heller the majority opinion asserted that there was an individual right to bear arms for the purpose of self-defense. Further, the phrase a well-regulated militia does not in itself limit the purpose nor type of firearms civilians are able to possess. However, the majority opinion also asserted that the Second Amendment does not allow citizens to keep and, bury, to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever, in any manner whatsoever, and for whatever purpose. Therefore, prohibitions on certain people, restrict, restrictions on carrying in certain places, and imposing certain requirements for individuals to obtain firearms are indeed constitutional. Justice John Paul Stevens, along with the court's three other liberal justices, dissented, stating that the Second Amendment was based on a collective right, and that the framers of the Constitution did not limit the ability of Congress or the states to regulate individual use of firearms. After retiring from the bench in 2010, John Paul Stevens wrote in a 2018 New York Times op-ed that the Second Amendment was a, quote, relic of the 18th century, and that it was time to repeal the amendment in order to stem gun violence in the U.S. The idea of an outright repeal of the Second Amendment is overall disfavored, by a majority of Americans. A Heartland Institute and Rasmussen Reports survey in 2019 found that 66% of American voters do not support a repeal, while just 24% do. However, according to a recent Gallup poll, 56% of Americans are somewhat or very dissatisfied with current gun laws. This is largely split along party lines, as 70% of Republicans are currently satisfied while 22% of Democrats are. In March 2021, three public mass shootings reached national news coverage in the United States. March 16th, eight individuals were killed by a man with a handgun at three separate Atlanta area spas. 
On March 22nd, 10 individuals, including a police officer, were killed with an AR-556 pistol at a grocery store in Colorado. Finally, on March 31st, a man killed four individuals, including a child, with a handgun in a business complex in Orange, California. These recent mass shootings have placed gun reform front and center on the national agenda. In response, Democrats in the House have passed one bill mandating universal background checks and another extending the waiting period for a gun, for a firearm, from three to 10 days. President Joseph Biden has also called upon Congress to reinstate an assault weapons ban, which was in place between 1994 and 2004. Republicans have largely opposed these measures, stating that they will not stem gun violence and only infringe on law-abiding citizens' ability to obtain firearms. So the first question I would like to pose to the panel would be, should the federal government pass gun legislation implementing universal background checks and an assault weapons ban? Would these laws likely decrease gun violence and or mass shootings? So as far as the uh, assault weapons ban, this is William, by the way, um, whether or not that's constitutional, unconstitutional, it, it does appear to be wildly unpopular. So if the Democratic Party does does want to do that, um, if they're trying to play towards the centrist message, it, it doesn't really strike me as a good move politically for them to take such a hard line on, on gun control. In addition to that, you know, it's, it's unclear what Washington considers to be an assault weapon. And, and I think there's a lot lost in translation between what Washington considers to be an assault weapon and what your average American considers to be assault weapon. So should they, if they want to continue winning elections, um, perhaps they should not, because this, this just seems like a ripe issue for attack ads and such. But that's, that's my answer on that. And it is very mixed, too, about the support. A Gallup poll, for instance, in 2019 found that six in 10 Americans at that time supported an assault weapons ban. Uh, yeah, I could probably um, respond to that one. Um, so with my party, um, the main concern that we have uh, moving forward would be um, the increased amount of um, mass shootings that have occurred. So that is the reason why uh, my party has been advancing on the principle of universal uh, background checks and implementing an, um, an assault weapons ban. Um, me, I take no issue with that. Um, should it apply to every single individual? No, I don't think so. Um, because uh, I had a conversation with a colleague of mine uh, who is in the military, or he's going to be in the military, and he has an AR-15. And I think it should be permissible to those who are like in the military, um, our police, or any like armed forces to um, hold that, especially if that's their job. Um, it, with like an accountant, you're not going to take away a calculator um, from an accountant because they need that to use, you know, in the profession. Similar to uh, a weapon in um, or for a serviceman, like you don't want to take that away. Um, so given like that's a very like the universal and um, assault weapons ban. That's a very broad topic or a, a broad um, statement, but I think once we get into uh, the, the uh, specifics of it, um, it'll smooth that out uh, just a little bit more. And just to get into the specifics a little bit more, so the 1994 ban, 
was had a lot of exceptions to it. It said any semi-automatic assault rifle that had a detachable magazine and two out of a list of modifications to that rifle was banned. Now, what banned meant was anybody who had that kind of rifle before 1994, before the act was instated, would still be able to keep it. Nobody was giving back their guns involuntarily. And it's sunset in 2004 after a federal study found that it really did not change gun violence all that much, which brings me to another point that even the vast majority of what people consider mass shootings, and mass shooting is usually defined as a shooting in which four or more are killed or injured, not including the shooter. But looking at mass shootings in the United States between 1998 and this year, 55% had only a handgun used, and 27% had even involved a rifle. So I guess a good question would be, are we, are we barking up the wrong tree here with an assault weapons ban? Is assault weapons really what the Democratic Party should be, for lack of a better word, targeting in this? Or should it be more handgun focused? Um, <clears throat> I'm okay with an assault weapons ban, I'm not going to lie. Um, because like, if we look at trends, um, yes, like the AR-15, like that's one like go-to um, weapon uh, for many uh, uh, killers. Uh, and also, like my side, um, they always go to like the AR-15, like us ban the AR-15. Um, but uh, if we do have that, um, we're not going to stop mass shootings. Uh, mass shootings are inevitable, um, but it's what you can do. It's the little tiny details um, that you can uh, address um, that would prevent um, even greater destruction. Um, so it's kind of like a border wall mentality, um, right? So. Uh, the mentality behind a border wall is to prevent the influx of illegal immigrants from crossing the border, um, and many of whom are uh, very violent criminals, right? So if we implement legislation, um, such as like closing loopholes or uh, banning certain types of weapons um, for violent and disturbed individuals, uh, we will prevent some shooting um, it, it just has to do with just lessening the amount of shootings um, because many people have this false idea that if you ban a single weapon or if you enact a single legislation, um, it's going to solve all problems. Uh, that's not the case, um, and it, it will never be the case. But you have to like keep uh, changing, uh, updating uh, your laws to fit with the times. I, have a... I agree with the, the sentiment of updating your laws, but if... You yourself have admitted that, you know, you're not going to eliminate every shooting. And it sounds like what, what the consensus is becoming here is that you're not going to eliminate most shootings, given that all, only 20, uh, was it 22% were only a rifle. 27, yeah. Uh, or involved a rifle. Then it just seems like a really bad move for the Democrats to take this, you know, you know 40% of the people don't want an assault weapons ban. Um, and if we go back to those 1994 rules on what an assault weapon is, that's a lot more than just an AR-15. So it seems like the Democrats, uh, in an attempt to do something about this violence, um, in doing so only in the form of an assault weapons ban, just only serves to alienate, you know, middle Americans. I have a, a study here. I found an article from ABC News in 2012. 
that cited a study from the University of Pennsylvania um, measuring the overall impact of the 1994 assault weapons ban. And it was quoted that said, um, the study found that guns, that gun crimes involving assault weapons declined by as much as 72% in the localities examined after the ban went into effect. However, the authors note that these types of weapons were only used in 2 to 8% of the gun crimes committed prior to the ban, so the larger impact on gun violence was criminal. And then it said, we cannot clearly credit the ban with any of the nation's recent drop in gun violence. And indeed, there, was n there has been no discernible reduction in the lethality and injuriousness of gun violence. So with that, um, and then I found another, I, um, that was a reading that was already too long, but there was another article from NPR that mentioned the same thing, that it did reduce the number of mass, of mass shootings, um, but overall, gun violence wasn't necessarily curbed. Um, so going back to what you asked earlier, Liam, about are we kind of targeting the wrong thing, I would say yes, for sure. Um, and maybe kind of bringing it back to um, the question about universal background checks also. Most people support that. Um, I mean, I feel like even a lot of conservatives would, except for the concern that it would create a registry, which most people are against because of the tyrannical threat of if government decides to take our guns, they know exactly where, who has them and where they are. Um, and it would be incredibly easy for them to do so. So I want to touch on that, taking the guns. Um, <laughs> the ability for the government to do that is very, very um, difficult because there are laws that are protecting citizens' rights. Um, and a lot of that has to do with just this idea that, okay, the government's out to get you. It's going to take you or take your uh, possessions or whatever. Um, but it, in actuality, it's very, very difficult for any government to do that or for our uh, government to do that. Um, but we are, like, banning an AR-15 is not going to solve all problems, right? Um, I think we can all agree on that. And what needs to be addressed would be the mental health aspect of um, why these people are committing the crimes that they are or, like, what's causing them to um, snap. And an important thing to jump in on the mental health aspect that a lot of people don't realize, in most years, 61% of United States gun deaths are from suicide, mm -hmm. which is a pretty jarring fact. And that does need to be addressed if we're ever going to get serious about talking about gun violence as a whole. Exactly. And with mental health, um, a lot of it, there's a there's a stigma um, regarding mental health that we have to break because um, many of those who are who do have some uh, mental disabilities are seen as not I wouldn't say like not as capable but they're kind of like brushed aside in society um, and like if you do need help I recommend go getting it because um, like there are more than plenty of resources to uh, address whatever issue that one may have um, but I think, yeah, with mental health, it needs to be um, discussed even greater. I would go farther than that, and I'd say that mental health isn't, you know, or isn't caused by, pardon me, isn't brushed aside by society, but it's caused by our society. And I go so far as to say that we see these high suicide numbers and these shootings because there's this large population of people that, for whatever reason, are not included in our society and feel alienated from their society. And that if we want to end, you know, these mass shootings, we shouldn't do the unpopular thing of banning weapons, but we should try and fix our society, which is driving people to do this. I agree completely. And I don't have any like facts right now to 
back this up, but there's um, points been made that I've heard previously about how mass shootings in the U.S. especially have become a problem in the last two or three decades, <laughs> but guns have always been around in the States even before then. So what changed in the 90s that is, that is causing us to see this kind of, I don't know, this, this increase in, in violence like this? And definitely mental health is probably a, a huge part of that. Mm. And I don't think that there's adequate um, resources going to mental health. Um, and it's unfortunate. Um, but like I said, like just banning one gun is not going to do anything. Implementing one legislation is not going to just, uh, eradicate all killings. Um, but the issue is far deeper than, um, it, it's not a shallow layer issue, right? Cause I, I really do want to tap into that mental health. Um, because, uh, that, yeah, no, it's important. I'll put it that way. And looking at the mental health aspect, too, there is a phenomenon when there's a high-profile celebrity suicide in the United States that usually spurs an uptick in general suicide rates. And I would say that could definitely be applied to the increase in mass shootings in the last two decades. When you see a mass shooting popularized on the news that really everybody sees, you cannot get away from these stories, these horrific stories— then that might, in a way, motivate someone else from another part of the country to do this thing. And that's a lot of times why some news agencies have tried to stop saying the name of the killer on the news waves, because then it might motivate someone else to say, hey, this is how I'm remembered in a very uh, disturbing way. So I would say... One thing the media can do is stop saying the people's, stop saying the shooters' names, and stop. Well, nobody's glorified here, but really make sure it's about the victims of these horrible tragedies. I, I think talking about it only in terms of mental health, though, does discount some of the politically motivated killings that we've seen recently. Uh, notably, the you know, uh, oh, it was the one in Char Dylan Roof killings. Mm -hmm. um, these people, you know, mental health may be a catalyst, but it's not always the cause. You know, there are people who use these weapons to go out and kill massive numbers of people. So it's not just a mental health problem. It is also a problem of, of individuals and politically motivated attacks. Mm -hmm. And that's true. And I don't, like we said, we're not going to, if we have the best mental health system in the world, uh, bar, bar, if we get there and just have a much, like, more... If we solve those problems right now the best we can, there are still going to be individuals who would be motivated to commit these atrocious crimes. And it is also true that guns don't kill people. People kill people. But in to the, perfectly on, the fact of the matter is that guns make it a whole lot easier to kill a whole lot more people. So would going back, I guess, to the proposed pieces of legislation, would a more expansive assault weapons ban or some kind of um, background check system that caught all sellers, or even a gun registry that could help track a lot of these weapon purchases uh, back to who sold them to close those loopholes. Would any of these proposed legislations really put a cap on the realistic decrease of gun violence? I mean, I think... I. Oh, go ahead. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, I think maybe initially it would, um, but 
I mean, when you look at the, I have another statistic here from the DOJ in 2016, where it's uh, 43.7% of illegal guns used in crime um, come from the underground markets. Mm -hmm. And like I have read the 2021 um, ban being uh, proposed by a, Diane Feinstein is her name? Yep. Oh, 43.2% um, are from the street or, or underground markets. Um, it's It bans, it, it lists 200 some types of guns that would be banned, but there's no plan to take away the guns that are, that those guns that are already in America owned yes. by people. Um, so it, I feel like that would only increase the underground markets. Another 25.3% get it from family and friends. So we have to figure out a way to disincentivize people to go through the harder checks to get their friends and family guns to use them um, illegally. So I think there's um, there's some things that laws just don't fix because if you're breaking the law, adding more laws won't make you stop breaking the law, if that makes sense. Well, that is true. And there there is the problem. There's an estimated 20 million assault rifles in the hands of U.S. civilians. Mm -hmm. And overall, and this is an estimate because once again, we don't have registry. We don't really know. But there's an estimated 434 millions, million civilian gun guns as of 2020. But in a way, you said people get the get these guns from private sellers who in most states do not have to do a background check. For instance, if I went out and got a gun legally, I could really sell to whoever I pleased in Wisconsin without doing a background check at all. That is what the Universal Background Checks Bill, H.R. 8, is trying to do, trying to close those loopholes and make sure that every private seller does a background check through the National Instant Criminal Background Check system. And that's, I mean, that's something I would agree with mm -hmm. to a certain extent. It would, like I mentioned earlier with the the fear of tyranny is just making sure that's in, that there's something there that is preventing that being used against us at some point in the future. Like obviously right now there are protections, but the more you give, you start a registry and then 20 years from the line, that's still not fixing gun control. So you have to do something else and you just, they just keep taking. And that's the concern was like, you just kind of, you have to, you have, a, have to draw a line somewhere. So it would have to be done in a, in a way that makes people feel better about something like that. And I don't know how you do that. <laughs> There's going to be no perfect answer um, or no perfect solution. Um, but in order for us to get farther, um, we have to have dialogue, um, not just with our own side. I mean, with me, I just can't have a dialogue with Democrats. You know, you have to go to the other side. And likewise, with the Republicans, they can't just talk to Republicans. Um, and that's where a lot of the lack of, uh, I guess, finding a solution or like implementing legislation um, is because too many people are infatuated or they're they're enthralled with like one like or not associating themselves with a group right if it's like the term socialist or if it's the term republican like um no you have to like break that barrier uh and then once you do keep a level head right not like in congress right now it's more of like a partisan egg throwing contest um as my one professor <laughs> said um but we we have to move past that um, and then for us to do that, just talk like we're doing right now. That's what we're doing here. <laughs> Thank you. So what do we, um, I guess, since we're moving in this direction, another question I would pose to the group is what other possible solutions can we implement or can be implemented by Congress, state legislatures, business, society 
to stem gun violence and mass shootings in the U.S.? I would say that in order to do that, we have to improve the material and uh, social conditions of people across the board. Because you look at these shooters, there's not a lot of, you know, well-to-do people who have a lot of opportunities in life and feel like they have control over their lives who go out and commit mass shootings or even commit, you know, shoot one person. It tends to be people who are dejected, who feel they have no role in society, and because there is no role in society, they correctly recognize that they have no control over their own lives, and that's what causes these shootings. So I think fixing the social issues um, that affect every American will if we improve everyone's life, we will see these shootings go down. It's not an issue of guns. I see it as an issue of material concern. So I think one very beneficial thing we could do is make sure that, especially in schools, that there are more counselors and more outreach to students to make sure that in terms of the social situation, students are heard and being accounted for uh, mentally for their mental health. I think kind of going off of that, I maybe have two points, but two sides of the same coin here. I think gun safety education would be a huge, uh, a really big help in maybe two different ways. So like you just mentioned, mental health, there's um, some studies out there that show there's there's very specific types of people who are very predictable and who would become um, mass shooters. They have certain... I mean, if they had life trauma, if they have certain mental health issues, there's lots of signs. I mean, when the Parkland shooting happened, everyone was talking about, like, the police knew this. He had a record, and his his parents knew that there was something going on. Like, I, I just read it earlier today, but there were things going on where people knew he was a danger but didn't do anything about it. So I think with those counselors, like, not only recognizing those signs but actually knowing how to handle it when you're noticing these things. Um, and then kind of on the other end of that, actually, like, like actually teaching people what gun safety is. So I have a, a study here um, that says, at least regarding firearm suicides, um, suicides among people under the age of 17 um, found that 82% of the firearms that they used to attempt suicide belonged to a family member, usually their parent. Mm-hmm. The, storage status was n- the storage status was noted that two-thirds of the firearms had been stored unlocked, and among the remaining cases in which the firearms had been locked, the youth knew the combination or where their key was kept or broke into the cabinet. So that's ridiculous to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I the fact that two-thirds of these people kept their gun unlocked is insane to me. And then, I mean... Like, my dad's an NRA instructor. He, I mean, my brother and I have been shooting guns since we were very little, but, like, even now, I do not know the combinations to our safes. Everything is locked. He's with us every time we go shooting. There's been a huge emphasis on safety and respecting that this is a weapon but is a tool for protection, and that's why he wants us to be aware of these things. And I think that doing something, like, whenever you buy a gun, you have to get a license and you have to take a class that teaches you gun safety. You have to keep it locked. Don't give your kids the combination unless you seriously trust them. And even then, I'm not totally sure. Like, things like that, and I think that would help a lot. I mean, I compare it a lot to, like, sex education. You know, if you have a rise in teen pregnancies, most people wouldn't go to the solution. Well, teach them chastity and (laughs) just don't have sex. Like, for the most part, society says... No, we're going to teach you what happens when you do this, and here are ways you can prevent unplanned pregnancies. And I feel like that would be an approach to gun violence. Like, I feel like there's such a there's such a fear and a stigma around guns, understandably, but when you teach people how to handle it safely, like those kinds of things, I think that would 
help stem a lot of this fear and make people feel more comfortable and more safe in how to handle these situations themselves too. So don't you think that teaching people how to use guns would make them more lethal at using guns if they wanted to kill like a large group of people? I suppose, but at the same time, all of the people who then can protect themselves. I mean, and like, like you just said, if we have to do mental education, we have to recognize the signs of people who shouldn't handle guns. There are still laws in place, background checks, all these kinds of things. It's just now for the people who are buying guns, making absolutely sure that those people who have them are capable of using it for protection and, sa- and are able to do it safely. Still having all of those things in place that prevent people who shouldn't have guns to have guns at the same time. It's not just te- it's not teaching kids in school how to shoot a gun. Is what I'm saying. You're not just letting everybody do it. It's when you're buying a gun or something along those lines. And what would be preferable, me going to a store myself and then teaching myself where I could become a very professional eventually and have maybe some friend of an instructor, and God knows what that friend of might be telling me, or on the other hand, having a registered qualified instructor mm-hmm. that teaches me safety and teaches me what a gun is and why I should be having a gun in the mm-hmm. first place and teaching me how to use that safely. Absolutely. I'm a little bit more in favor of the latter, personally. Yeah. <laughs> and I absolutely agree with that. Like, I mean, I have lots of friends who, they, they are safe with guns, obviously, but they buy them just because they're fun and they want to go shooting with them, where maybe if there were something ahead of time, like, by the way, this is a weapon, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. be careful with it for people who maybe aren't as, I mean, the people I hang around who buy guns are trained and have gone through classes and things like that. But there are definitely people out there who just buy a gun to buy a gun because it's cool and they want to shoot it. I mean, requiring something that's like if you're going to get a gun, you have to have these safety features from a professional. I think that's a totally, I think that would be a really good solution to some extent to curb it. So you've mentioned multiple times knowing the signs. Because mm-hmm. um, like with many of these uh, mass shootings, you know, the, these individuals have had like social media posts saying, I don't know, just horrible things mm-hmm. uh, to certain groups of people. Um, but it's all protected under our Constitution. Mm-hmm. We we have individuals that go to shooting ranges just to blow off steam. So would that not be a warning sign itself? And then how, with addressing the warning signs, how are we able to prevent them from getting the weapons um, without the fear of people having, uh, with the government overreach? I mean, we, we kind of do it already to a certain extent. We have... I forget, it, it's, I think it's Common Council or something like that. There's, there's already things in place where when, if you notice someone having mental health issues, kind of along the lines of red flag laws, but not quite, um, but things in place where if someone, if you notice someone being reckless with guns or has, having warning signs of, hey, they own a gun or they're talking about getting guns and they're, they seem violent, like there's, there are things in place already that prevent that and that are already constitutional that are already being used so then why didn't that prevent the multiple mass shootings in the past it's i mean it's not a perfect system people have to notice it that's the point is that unless somebody notices it and enacts those things that are in place nothing's going to happen obviously like like earlier the example parkland shooting everyone was talking about all these things that people were noticing and nobody did anything the sheriff's office wasn't doing their job they had them on record it was just so i i yeah, it's just there are things in place, and it's about making sure that people are actually acting on them to prevent those kinds of tragedies. And going back, uh, what you said about red flag laws. So would be would something to decrease 
violence and mass shootings, homicide, especially domestic violence, would one of the beneficial laws that we could put forth would be expanding red flag laws? I would say no. And I, I think okay. we see an example of that. The failure of red flag laws is, you know, they propose people who are on no fly list, um, you know, being prohibited from buying weapons. That, that was a proposal that came up not too long ago. And the thing with that is, you know, who controls these lists, who controls who gets put on them is always in the, you know, it's in the hands of the executor and in the hands of the executive branch. And, you know, that changes from administration to administration. And anyone can, if anyone can get put on there, then you have to think about what, you know, what the current administration would do and who they're targeting for who they don't want to have guns. So I, I see that as a big no as far as, you know, protecting people's rights. Well, if you take away that no-fly list aspect, a lot of the red flag laws are, let's say I'm a family member or a friend or a neighbor of somebody, and this person I either know is planning to get guns or has guns, and I think that this is a dangerous person. I, I, I go to a court or the police department, and I put in this request, uh, this complaint. Then the police department must go and get a court order from a judge to temporarily take those guns away. And then that individual who had those guns must go to court in order to uh, argue in front of a judge why he or she should be given their guns back. And there's usually an expiration date on this to six months to a year. So would can't that- you see that being used in a racial context though? I mean, can't you, we, we know that there's these racial aspects of our justice system that unfairly discriminate against people. And I don't think it would be unfair to say that a neighbor could racially discriminate against their neighbor. So you could have this compounding effect where, you know, you have black families in America, they're having their guns that they legally own taken away because their community doesn't want black people to have guns. And all of that fits within the system you just described, which on paper sounds like it would work great, but in reality does nothing but, you know, strip guns from people. Yes, but you can't, The if you're going to get a warrant from a judge, the reason can't be because my neighbor is black. It has to yeah, be. It, does, it doesn't have to be that, but to be, you know, of course, you know, you can't say I'm arresting this person because they're black, but that happens all the time in the justice system where these issues are framed in terms of things that aren't on paper racist but are very racially motivated. And I think to put that much trust in our justice system, which we know is flawed, and to say that, yeah, they're going to go ahead and make the right decision into perpetuity just is not, is not well-founded. I think there are other problems that need to be solved before we can trust the government to faithfully execute these laws in a non-discriminatory fashion. Once again, it's not just the government, it's the people of the community saying that this person might be a danger and then going to the police with a, a least probable cause, some kind of evidence, that there needs to be evidence to take their guns away even temporarily. And once again, even if they take them away, it's temporary. Um, I'd like to add to another um, criticism of it is like, our justice system is, is supposed to be um, innocent until proven guilty, whereas this system is just my neighbor said that I might commit suicide and the court wrote it and now my gun is taken away with, I mean, obviously they have to present some sort of evidence, but it's, it's automatically taking the assumption that I'm dangerous and they have to do something about it right away. And I think that's a concern too with this is the, it kind of seems, it seems to flip the system of our justice system on its head. And then you have to prove to the court that I'm not dangerous. I'm not going to hurt myself or others, which is kind of backwards. But I mean, I, but I'm not sure how 
much it would be abused in that sort of way or anything like that either. Well, it, one, that's just one of the criticisms. Once so. again, there needs to be evidence to take the guns away even temporarily in the first place. But like what kind of evidence though? Like is the neighbor going into your house taking pictures of me like doing something dangerous? I don't, I, that's part, that's why I don't, I don't well, understand. Well, that varies depending on the judge yeah. too writing the warrant. Exactly. So there's just lots, and, and lots just of caveats, thing. it seems, <laughs> depending on the judge, depending on the on evidence. The exactly. Yep. Go ahead. We're talking over here. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, Will. <laughs> yep. No, no, no. Go ahead. I mean, if it depends on the judge, then, you know, you have to trust that your judges won't make bad decisions. It, it, you say it's the community, but all it takes is one community member to make a complaint. And then it takes, you know, an overzealous judge, justice system to find evidence, heavy air quotes on that. And it takes one judge to decide, okay, you know what, I'm, I don't want this person to have a weapon. And then all of a sudden they're deprived of rights. What other rights could we possibly deprive of people in that manner that we would find that okay? I mean, it sounds like the creation of a, an American, you know, Gestapo state where, you know, your neighbors can inform on you because they don't like you or for any number of reasons, and racially motivated or otherwise, and then you can be deprived of your rights. That's, that's not a good precedent for, to set. But you also have the option to go back to the legal system and defend your rights, too. And in the Gestapo state, that wasn't an option. <laughs> and also, I would say that it only also takes one person to commit a Parkland. It only also takes one person to commit a Sandy Hook. And even though I would say the ba balancing out those provisions, people do have the court system to go through and defend themselves with. And, and state their rights with, even though if their guns are temporarily taken away, they can fight for those rights back through the court system. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably the most reasonable way to keep people from having guns who might carry out atrocious acts. When you have to look at... I, yep. well, okay. I, I think the problem with that is the assumption that, you know, might. They might do any number of things, but you know, you can't prove that they're going to do any of those things until they do it. And if you're operating under the assumption, oh, we'll just, you know, go with every, they may do this, then inevitably you're going to deprive people of all sorts of their rights who were never going to do it on the assumption that the justice system can determine that ah, they might do it. And yet again, you know, what other rights are we willing to give away on that circumstance? You know, hey, you don't have free speech anymore because you might, you know, organize a riot. We, that sounds ridiculous, and it is ridiculous. But when we talk about gun control, it's not framed in the context of a right, and it is a right. And just adding on to that, um, we can look at the past history of an individual because um, that also speaks volume. Um, we, all, we don't want it to become a witch hunt saying, okay, this person's not um, fit to hold a gun, I don't feel safe, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then, okay, so they have to appear before a court or whatever. Um, to get a court... Uh, date set it can take a very long time um, because of how horrible um, our court system is set up um, so uh, yeah no that, that's all I had to say at the moment mm -hmm. so what will be a better system then to ensure people are accountable watching making sure that certain violent individuals don't get guns in a in another words acting upon the warning signs. How else could we act upon the warning signs? I don't think that there is a set list of warning signs for people that will do this. I mean, I think in hindsight, you could say, 
oh, yeah, it was pretty clear that they were going to commit a mass shooting. But, you know, everything seems clear when you look at it from the past. In, in the lens of the present, there's all sorts of people. I mean, if you heard the things that I said, you know, about a ref after a bad call, then perhaps, you know, in a, in a game, then perhaps you could say, oh, man, this guy's a violent individual. And I'm not a violent individual, but, you know, what what gets defined as a warning sign isn't clear. And it, I don't necessarily think that it should be up to any any government institution or even, even any policymakers to determine what is a warning sign. So there's no possible way we can look for warning signs to prevent these shootings? Not fairly, I don't believe. Can we not look at trends? I, I guess we could look at trends, but I, yeah, well, then, like I said, so I, I then would that, would that not be a warning sign? Positive. So if we if we do look at trends, would that not technically be um, following the lines of oh, that may be a warning sign, that may not be? Yes, but when you look at trends, you also group in a bunch of people that do fit those parameters that have no desire or, and will never kill people with a firearm, and you're punishing them because they have something in common with a you know mass shooter. And that works fine if you consider, you know, factors that, you know, are wishy-washy and like, oh, you know, they've made social media posts. But what if somebody decides that that factor that we're going to determine is race, that the trend is race? That's wrong. That's absolutely wrong. And we shouldn't be denying people rights on the basis of a so guilt by association. Or warning signs like posts or how many times they were admitted to the hospital uh, because of like a mental breakdown or mental illness. Um, those are the signs that I'm, like, addressing. Um, I've been around, like, my family um, consists of many medical um, professionals, including my mother, who's a psychiatrist, um, So, which is why I push, like, that mental health aspect, uh, because it's not addressed enough in our society. Um, and in order for us to overcome this issue, um, I think we need to pay more attention to uh, mental health. Um, I will say... I just did a quick search to find the things that I was trying to mention earlier about what's already in place. Um, and I found civil commitment, which I don't know what I said earlier, but that wasn't it. But this is what it is, a civil commitment. And it seems like it's a court-ordered institutionalization of a person suffering from mental illness, alcoholism, or drug addiction, um, usually upon a find that the person is dangerous to himself or to others. So I think, I mean, if you're seeing those signs that you're mentioning, like the the social media posts or things like that. And there's obvious um, evidence that this person is suffering or could be dangerous to themselves. I think that's obviously one thing that's already in place. And then the other one is a TRO, which I'm not totally sure I'm finding the correct thing about what that stands for, what it is, but it seems like it's a restraining order. Um, so temporary restraining order, TRO, mm -hmm. um, with the law. So things like that, that could be, um, that already in place that can be used. That seem to be, I mean, the civil commitment seems really similar to the red flag law in that way, as long as there's evidence of a person needing that kind of help, that it, it could happen by court order. Um, so, And also, we do this with other rights as well, this kind of warrant thing. I mean, we all, Fourth Amendment, we have a right to privacy. Mm -hmm. and But that right to privacy can be intruded upon if it's strict scrutiny, well, what the Supreme Court defines as strict, scrut strict scrutiny is, uh, in the least, basically what strict scrutiny is, that if it's a core right and you have to amend that in some way, if the justice system has to breach that in some way, for, for instance, public safety, 
then they must do so in the least restrictive manner possible in order to fulfill that government interest. Right? And so if you need if the police need to search your apartment, they need a warrant. And like red flag law, they need evidence to go and search your apartment. Now, should we completely end all search warrants because that is a violation of Fourth Amendment rights? Just like a red flag law might be a violation of the Second Amendment rights in the same manner? Well, I think what we see in the justice system is that police are more than willing to violate your constitutional rights if they feel that they, they, they will get something out of it. There's tons of examples. I mean, the Baltimore police were caught on videotape planting cocaine in people's apartments to in retroactively fabricate search warrants. The police have no problem violating your rights if they want you to go away to go to prison. So giving them extra power to violate people's rights is not a good precedent to set. I don't. I think we should be careful by just saying the police in broad strokes, because yes, there are very dishonest police officers out there, definitely, but there are also very honest police officers as well that are trying to do good for the community. But there, we also must focus, of course, on those dishonest ones, like the ones in Baltimore that you mentioned. However, that is going to be the way of any system. There are going to be dishonest officials, so we do have yeah, to. Mm-hmm. The problem comes with our, our system is that our dishonest officials are being defended by honest officials. And this system is set up to protect these dishonest people. So as long as the justice system is as broken as it is and as racist as it is, I see no reason to hand over the keys and more rights to the justice system. I think they're irresponsible and they shouldn't be allowed to strip us of more rights. So there should be no search warrants. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that in our current system, we know the police use search warrants incorrectly. Mm -hmm. And I would like to build a system in which the police can use search warrants correctly. And I say the police because, you know, they're an organization. And when an organization does something wrong, they need to be punished. And if the organization denies that they're doing anything wrong in spite of evidence and protects the people who were doing wrong by breaking more laws, they do get to be defined as an organization and as a group. Absolutely. And they should be punishing there does need to be reform and if we realize that reform like you're talking about to help with more honest search warrants for instance for the fourth amendment rights could there not then be a system that we could reasonably put forth for red flag laws i absolutely agree but in our current system if we're only talking about red flag laws i do not trust our current system to to execute those in a fair manner And I definitely agree that there does need to be some reforms of the current criminal justice system and of the current police system. I also will say, I don't, I'm like iffy on red flag laws. I'm pretty sure I don't support them. But again, there's already things like the civil commitment that seem kind of similar that are already in place and that sort of thing. But there are um, Republican officials like Marco Rubio has um, submitted a law or bill one time that had something similar to a red flag law. So there does seem to be some support of red flag laws or something similar on the right as well, depending on the person and who you ask. And I would like to pivot then to another potential solution, since that's the kind of area of discussion we're on right now. Now, Miranda, you kind of mentioned a little bit earlier licensing and making sure people are, it's a qualified right, essentially. 
that the Second Amendment, like the Supreme Court said in District of Columbia v. Heller, the landmark most recent ruling about the Second Amendment, that although there is that individual right for self-defense to have a firearm that is most acute in the home, as they said in that case, also not every anyone for whatever purpose, for whatsoever, can have a firearm. There are reasonable regulations. Mm-hmm. So I would also like to point out automatic weapons. For those who don't know, an automatic weapon is when you hold down that trigger, it continually fires out bullets. And a semi-automatic weapon, which is the focus of the current assault, uh, proposed assault weapons ban, would be one put trigger pull, only one bullet comes out. Now that is the vast majority. We do have automatic weapons in this country, but they have been regulated highly since the 1934 National Firearms Act. Now, this act, along with four other kinds of weapons, explosives, silencers, and short barrel or shot-off shotguns, you need to have a federal firearm license to get one of these weapons, which takes a few months to get, nine nine months to a year about. And there's a $200 tax on that license in each weapon that you get. And since 1986, you cannot buy a weapon that has been, buy an uh, automatic weapon that has been made after 1986. But as of 2017, according to the ATF, there are still 630,000 automatic weapons in the United States. Since 1934, four crimes, four crimes have been committed with automatic weapons in the United States. None of these crimes have been mass shootings. Now, what that really personally tells me is that licensing may do some good. And when you look at, for instance, just even within a state licensing, when Connecticut in 1995 put forth gun licensing requirements to get a gun, they saw a 40% decrease in firearm homicides and a 15% reduction in firearm suicides, according to Johns Hopkins' 2018 study. Now, when Missouri repealed its gun licensing requirements in 2007, they saw a 16% increase in firearm suicides and a 25% increase in firearm homicides. So given this information, given that the Supreme Court has said that there are certain requirements that can be met and certain prohibited persons, for instance, felons, that can be barred, would licensing or um, national licensing for firearms be a good thing to put forth? You got me with national. <laughs> like, okay, okay. Like I was, I'm down for licensing at state levels, but once you say national, that's when it's like, it, that's just a conservative thing. I know lots of people who, <laughs> who aren't conservative think that like we're just crazy and we're always paranoid about the government coming for us. But that's, I mean, that's honestly uh, our viewpoint, our concern. That's the that's the reason for the Second Amendment is in the case of a tyrannical government. So as soon as you put it at the national level, then I'm not sure that I support it. But maybe at states, I, but at states, I think I would. Well, why not at the national level? Because then that's when the federal government has control over the guns and has kind of, I mean, I don't know that it would be a registry with the licensing, but they, the federal government has that access of mm-hmm. who's licensed, who has guns, who's buying them, who's selling them, that sort of thing. And at local or levels or local levels, that's not as much of a concern, whereas at the national level, they're the ones who are more likely to, I guess, use that power, I would think. Whereas I think at state levels, that wouldn't be 
as as much of a concern. So what has caused your distrust with the government in handling the gun crisis? Because like with me, I'm not so concerned with the government taking over your guns. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm more concerned with Duck Dynasty riding <laughs> at the Capitol. Um, that's just my personal belief. Um, so, so like, what 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 caused all of that, and like, what's what's preventing conservatives from offering solutions at the national level? I, it's not like any. I mean, maybe every, I'm sure every single conservative would give a different answer, but it's not. For me, I don't think it's that our government has done something that causes us to distrust the federal government. I mean... But there is a distrust. But there is a distrust overall. I mean, and obviously I'm not going to get into anything, but there are examples of... It just seems like anytime the federal government gets involved, things things get worse. And we just don't want that with guns, I suppose. And it's not necessarily our government or our history that causes distrust with guns, but actual history, like with... Um, like previous communist regimes, the Nazi party, like oh, there's, there is a general common theme. When, before government's oppressive, one of the first things they do is take away people's guns. And like, why would we repeat that history just because we don't think our government's gonna do that? You know what I mean? Well, so it's not, I, that's, what, that's what I think is the thing. But I, yeah, go ahead, Wells, you might say something different. Yeah, I, I, would, I would say that the idea that civilians having small arms does anything to curb government tyranny, it's just, <laughs> I hate to use the phrase laughable, but it doesn't make any sense. I mean, the idea that, you know, a group of civilians armed with AR-15s could overthrow the United States government, whether they're Duck Dynasty or radical communists or whatever you're afraid of, you know, for both of you, there is no capacity to do that with AR-15s. doesn't matter. There's no capacity to do that with automatic weapons, you know, automatic rifles. They, it, it can't be done. Um, the United States government has more than the capacity to put down an insurrection with these weapons, um, no matter what side it comes from. So being afraid of that or, you know, holding up the Second Amendment as a guard against tyranny, it, it's not. It, it's a right we have, but it's not a guard against tyranny in any real sense. So the, the being afraid of the national level, because if they take your guns, then they're going to put in Obamacare or whatever horrifying thing you're afraid of. It's, you know, the Second Amendment doesn't protect that. The status quo protects that and our, our belief in a democracy protects that. But the fact that, you know, we have 20 million assault rifles doesn't because that doesn't have a real impact on overthrowing any government, tyrannical or not. Well, I wouldn't say it's about overthrowing the government. It's I mean, I'm not exactly planning anytime soon in any sort of scenario to go to the Capitol and take on the National Guard or anything by that means. It's more so... <laughs> I'm not accusing you of that. <laughs> no, 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 Like, no, that's no. not... I don't think that... That's not what we mean by protecting from tyranny. It's more so, for whatever reason, someone is has knocked on my door coming to my house. At least I have something to protect myself f- from in that manner, if that makes sense. Like, if a police officer says, I want to it doesn't mean that's necessarily national but if they have some sort of um order that's like we have to do something that's against my rights at least i have some sort of protection against that and i don't have to and i have leverage in some sense of the form i mean i i'm i I suppose that wouldn't mean very much either in the sense of if that cops comes cop comes to my door with a machine gun obviously they probably have something against more leverage in that sense but it's 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 not yeah it's just Mm-hmm. No, I, I hear what like, you're saying that with that. Sense? No, that does. Like, that does. like we're not trying to create an army. It's just if someone comes to my door, I can tell them to get out, and I will shoot you if you don't. 
sort of a thing. It's not necessarily. Yeah, no, one, no one's denying anyone's yeah. like ability to have like a weapon within the house. For self-defense. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like it, it should be permissible. And if somebody wants to buy a gun legally, like, yes, they should have every right to do so. Um, obviously given like depending on the individual, um, mm-hmm. but, um, but there comes a point where you ask, okay, how many guns within a house are enough? Like if you cannot defend yourself with a pistol, right, that you would need like an automatic rifle, which I don't, I mean, few people actually have that mm-hmm. here. Um, but I'm just saying like, if, right. So like, if you are able to do the job, which is like one gun, okay, you can, but, um, my concern is just like so many people, so many households have like seven eight nine ten guns um some like are collectors which like that is an aspect that's another topic um but uh there just comes a point where i'm saying like enough is enough um and i think a lot of the increase in crime um has to do with the lack of support that we have for our police um because like a current issue right now would be like defunding the police but we can't defund the police and we can't take away um you know like the rights or whatever like we, we can't have both um, we have to be smart with how we allocate funding toward the police and how we address uh, the mental health aspect of um, purchasing, like, guns or of the individual that is pur- purchasing a gun. Um, does that make any sense? Or mm-hmm. Which I think, I'll go back to license. I think a licensing would help make sure that people are much more qualified and know what they're doing when they're purchasing a gun and also are verified that, they should be able to purchase a gun then too, and that that and also takes out the problem of universal background checks that in the loops holes in those background checks we currently have. But and Miranda, you said going back to national versus state. I mean, for instance, there's eight states right now, including Illinois, that have licensing, and I have myself have a firearm owner's identification card from Illinois. Uh, now, Illinois doesn't know how many guns I might have. They know that I have a card, that might mean I have a, a gun, or it might mean that I go to a range and shoot guns there because you'd still need the card to shoot guns and rent them at the range in Illinois. So wouldn't the federal government also have basically access to that? I mean, the federal government knows I have that FOID card. And if we have a system in every state licensing, one, the federal government just already know that people have those licenses. So how would that be different than just having the federal license that's much more centralized? I mean, just because the federal government wouldn't be in control of it or be the ones who are responsible for checking up on you or anything like that. That's the difference. Once it's national control, then they're the ones who are the ones deciding who are getting who are getting these licenses. They're the ones who can check up on people who have to take responsibility of knocking people's doors, do you have any guns, things like that. It's So it's, it's. I mean, and I understand, like, that they would have the information if all the states had it, but it's they, the states would be the ones in charge, not the federal government. And that's just the the point of, of let, like, the federalist, like, system that we have is just trying to keep hands, power in the hands of the people as much as we can versus, like, the government. And I, I think a lot, a lot of the distrust, or I think it's it, there's like this simple idea of like government equals bad, right? We ha- <laughs> like it's it's it, I mean that's exactly like the mentality of so many people. Like one thing is bad. That's just one factor. All right. So then you could try to avoid it as much as possible. But in order for us to make any meaningful change, 
we have to work with the national government. We have to work oh, yeah. with the federal government. And we mm-hmm. can't just say, okay, let's go to the states, let's go to the states, because then there will be such a disunity um, between, like, a structure. Like, we will be broken up again. No, I absolutely agree with you. And and <laughs> obviously it's a, it's a major framework of conservatives say we don't trust the federal government, but most conservatives... We're not anti-federal government. We're not, they have no role whatsoever. We want to take, they should have no responsibility or anything. Like there is a role for our federal government. Mm -hmm. It's just finding that balance, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Whereas it just seems like in conversations like this, it's like when you're constantly giving them more power, even if there isn't necessarily a specific reason that we should be afraid of the government, the fact that they have that, the more power they have in one aspect, then what changes them having power in a different aspect they already are in control of all these other things. Why not just let them do more? And that's, it's the buildup. Like, obviously, in the next 50 years, the federal government not do anything. But maybe in 100 or 150 years, the more power they have, that, like, the, the person who gives you something can also take it away. And it's just why even give them the power in the first place for that to ever become a problem, which I think is the, the mindset and the fear of tyranny and the, and the distrust of government. Not because we think they're going to do something, but, like, why even give them the option? If that makes sense. Mm, I think that there's just too strong of a fear of tyranny in the United States. There could be, absolutely. Um, And if you just look throughout American history, um, that has not really happened. Like, a whole lot. (laughs) Well, even though. Until. That's that's the point. Of course nothing's happened yet. Mm -hmm. And... You still have to be prudent about that, of course. But you have to be realistic with the issue that we have. Um, because you can put it too much of an emphasis on it where you would just lose like reality, mm-hmm. like what's in your mind versus what's in reality. Um, and I think like right now, um, like we have a very strong national government, um, and we need to have like one main body to create that structure that can work with local governments into creating a solution. Right. Um, but I, I don't think that just going to a local um, like to like the state uh, should be our first move. Um, we should be working more closely with the national government on this um, to find a solution. And yeah, also, absolutely. we we are the government in a way. We, we are the ones who appoint those representatives. And what we give to the federal government, we can also take away at the ballot box eventually too. I mean, if you look at Reagan, he slimmed down government much more from how big government was at FDR to how much slimmed down was by 1989 was drastic. Um, very, it was maybe drastic is the wrong term. There, there was a huge slim down of government. And so government can ebb and flow in that way too. And we doesn't, doesn't mean we can't give an inch to our federal government, but we always have to be making sure we're, we know what our government's doing and may, we are accountable. They are accountable to us, which is what we always do at the ballot box. I would push back and say that people are virtually powerless when it comes to making the federal government do anything. I'd say they're almost powerless when it comes to making the state government do anything. Uh, the idea that, you know, we can bring an issue to the ballot box is, is just not the facts. I, I, I feel, and I, I suspect that many other people in America feel that we have no capacity to make either one of the major parties do anything, um, that the Democratic and Republican parties have their own agendas and that the will of the people is entirely outside of and incidental to that. I don't know if you guys could back me up on that, but that's the way I feel and that's the way I know many people feel. That no. We feel powerless. 
I I to an extent I I do agree with you. Um, but a lot of that also has to do with not voting, because mm-hmm. um, uh, the superintendent election that occurred, um, according to Fox Eleven, from what I read, twenty twenty two percent. There was a twenty two percent turnout. So that is one of the reasons as to why nothing is getting done because nobody pays attention to it. Um, even though like that's like a different topic, but like the principle is the same, right? Like you have a voice, use it. Um, pressure, you have to give a politician pressure in order for the politician to do anything. Um, because like, what are, what are these pressures that we can inflict on, I don't know, Joe Biden or your district attorney or whoever it is. What is that pressure? So we're not going to elect you in four years. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we're in a system where every election, every four years is the biggest election of our lifetime, supposedly. And we're told you have to vote against this person, not necessarily for this person. Where does that leave room for pressuring politicians? Yeah, that's a, that's the one issue there. We always go to the presidential election. There are so many elections mm-hmm. that are equally as important, um, including local elections like mayoral, mayoral races, um, state senate races, um, and just all of that. Because, yes, local, like that's where a lot of the work gets done. Um, I think, you know, uh, we all can agree on that one. And a great question also is why is Joe Manchin not supporting H.R. 8 to have universal background checks? It's because a lot of his hardcore constituency in West Virginia is against that, is part of the gun culture that doesn't want the background checks when they're selling to friends, for instance, and doesn't have to want to go through that process. That's accountability to constituency. And he's facing massive pressure from the Democrat Party, but is going against that because he wants to get reelected. I mean, what he's doing is smart. Like, I don't agree with what Manchin's doing, mm-hmm. um, but... Just like looking through like the lens of a politician, um, they have to do that in order to get elected. Um, obviously, yes, like my party can put pressure on him to vote one way, <laughs> preferably like in our favor. Um, but like we can't obviously do that to the extent that we would want to, because like obviously like he's following his constituency, and that's what a good politician would do. Um, but yeah, the, the culture aspect is. It stems from decades of, like, TV shows of, like, guns, like, Bonanza. Like, I loved watching Bonanza when I was younger. You know, The Good, Bad, and the Ugly. Like, everything. Like, I mean, I mean, I had a lot of toys. I never owned a gun, but, like, I love toy guns when I was younger. I had, like, so many. Um, but, like, they, there is, like, that culture that we do need to address. And I think that we focus more heavily on, like, the love of guns um, is because of that strong, like, infatuation uh, my side has always said that, um, you know, the NRA is more concerned with protecting their guns than they are with their children. Um, take it as you may. Like, some cases that may stem true or that may reign true. Um, but we have to, like, break that, like, gun infatuation culture in order for us to move forward just a little bit. I disagree slightly, just on the premise that it's a gun culture. I, I definitely agree that there is a culture that needs to be addressed, but I think it's a culture of violence and the glorification of it. Agreed. I mean, mm-hmm. Agreed. It's, it's movies and of cops and the, I mean, there's a definitely a huge, in like gangster culture or things like that, where it's just, it's normal for those, for people to end up in certain situations and that's how you're protected and there's things that needs to be addressed. And I think it's, I would say it's a violence culture more so than it's a gun culture because if people under, I feel like if people guns are a tool a, a weapon 
mm-hmm. to carry out the violence and that's what they're deciding to use so i know we're already way over time so i don't want to oh, yeah. keep going but <laughs> well um we're coming down to the wire here and yeah. as uh we can just go around the panel for any last comments thoughts let's have dialogue yeah <laughs> um don't oh, make it a- oh, okay all right um yeah, I, I just want to say um, I'm William Topher. You can check out my Substack. That's uh, William Topher at Substack.com from the boys. So check that out. <laughs> Will do. Will do. Yeah. I think definitely having dialogue on this. This is an incredibly hard issue because it's so personal and emotional when, I mean, when you see these stories on TV, when you know people who have been affected by gun violence, when you live in a place like Milwaukee where – we, I mean, it feels like every week we're getting a MUPD notification that somebody got shot on 17th and State or things like that. So it's it, it's very emotional. It's very personal. And I think it's important when having having these conversations for one is important and then trying to like truly understand each other and like where we're coming from and handling these things logically versus emotionally. Because I think that gets in the way of the dialogue when it's like that. But you need a balance with that. Absolutely. Like, yeah, of course. Because yeah, I don't want to know. I don't know yeah, exactly. I, yeah. I agree. I don't know how many <laughs> notifications I got on my phone saying, mm-hmm. "Okay, there's a person shooting." Um, but just like coming together, and yes, it sounds like platitude. Um, by now, it, in many people's minds, it is. Um, but there's much meaning and much truth behind. You know, once we come together, like there's nothing that we cannot overcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and just recognizing that, like we are all neighbors. I guess that's my final point. Like, we are all neighbors. We all live under the same roof. We all live under the same flag. Like, let's recognize that and move forward together. I think just to finish us off, once we come together, we would be surprised how much we agree on certain aspects, and we would be surprised how much we can actually get done with legislation and just as a community. And even further, beyond legislation, if we come together as a community, there we can really... So in a culture, that might help decrease violence altogether. So everybody out there, remember, stay informed, stay political, because we have a republic to keep.